0: Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity and the invitation from ECL and Yale. Uh, you know, sometimes it takes your children to bring you back down to earth. I, my, uh, my high school daughter has taken a keen interest in science. And I was showing her the agenda. She said, "Well, I guess they saved the best for last." <clears throat> I showed her who else was participating in the summit, and then she turned to me and she says, "Well, it was still nice that they invited you." <laughs> so with that, I hope that I can inform, I can entertain. Um, and also give you a little bit about my perspective leading Edward's efforts in the health economics, reimbursement, and public policy environments, as well as my experience at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, where I was responsible for cardiovascular device coverage reviews for several years. You know, I was thinking about CMS uh, when I was at the agency. uh, We were called the Healthcare Financing Administration. The administrator at the time said, really, that name isn't good. The public really doesn't understand it. It's confusing to them. It maybe takes us off what our mission is, which is not only financing healthcare, but supporting uh, a good, good quality medicine. And so we changed the name to CMS. But really, if you think about it, the Healthcare Financing Administration was a pretty straightforward name for what what CMS does now, that the, the agency has greater charge, and that's true, but really at the end of the day, it's about financing good health care. Um, before I start uh, uh, my slides, and I'm going to go through some of them quickly, I'm happy to say we talked through some of these over the last uh, day and a half, but uh, I know we want to leave some time for discussion, but I want to read you something from the uh, medical device trade press that came out just before uh, the Christmas holiday. Um, The title was CDRH, that's the Centers for Device and Radiological Health at FDA PrEP's new program to streamline approval to reimbursement path. And the headline then further read, FDA's device center is expanding on its efforts to to facilitate a device firm's path from market approval to gaining reimbursement with the nascent CDRH reimbursement program, the first goal of the program is to establish a formal process under which a device sponsor can volunteer, voluntarily request that one or more identified payers participate in the pre-submission meeting to better inform the sponsor of what evidence is necessary to support both FDA approval and clearance and payer coverage. The article went on to point out that second under the program, CDRH will modify its current IDE exemption checklist and provide it to CMS upon request, and then furthermore, finally, The CDR's plans to work with payers and HTA, Health Technology Assessment Organizations, to determine if the Center can provide them with summary safety or effectiveness information for a device that might reduce the evidence needed to submit to a payer to support coverage. I read the article. I said, well, what's new? We do have some efforts in parallel review. We've been talking about this. Industry and academics can always approach the government and have these discussions and bring CMS and FDA together. So, I guess one of my my, my points uh, in in today's remarks is that we really need something uh, really revolutionary and significant to change the dialogue. And that even some of these efforts have really not resulted in much change. And we're we're really in a evolutionary and transformative time in healthcare for lots of different reasons. We've touched on the fact that patients around the world are demanding uh, technology, they're demanding healthcare, that the technologies have proliferated, they've become much more complicated, that there's significant economic challenges uh, all around the world. Um, You know, I just noted that the uh, Office of the Actuary at Medicare just came out with their annual healthcare spending report. It was interesting that for the first time in at least the last 10 years, if not more, the United States uh, percentage of GDP spent on healthcare care has declined. That was a 0.2% reduction, but still a significant. So, you know, when President Obama and others referred to bending the cost curve, uh, my, my reaction when I read the report was, well, this is the first time that actually the cost curve uh, has been bent a little bit in terms of a GDP decline. Now, we far exceed healthcare care spending as a proportion of GDP than I think anyone else in the world, but nonetheless, Uh, We all face similar economic challenges Uh, evidence needs are increasing internationally I'll touch on this a little bit later. Um, I think that's part of uh, the transfer of data uh, through the internet and and, and other means but but nonetheless and Perhaps I can use the transcatheter valves as as an example of this Um, uh, Really everyone's looking at at data and 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 uh, you'll need to create that data in the international marketplace um, and, uh, you know, I can say from, from my efforts leading our company's uh, uh, transcatheter valve discussions with Medicare resulting in a national coverage determination. Uh, one of the biggest challenges we faced was the uh, KCE's technology evaluation uh, report that served as the basis for lots of Medicare discussion uh, and, and lots of what they included in their decision. Uh, And so just the fact that the KCE Technology Assessment existed, was accessed by the agency, and used primarily as part of their evaluation was extremely difficult. Now, that might have been reasonable, uh, but my point is that the internationalization of uh, data and information is just going to be uh, incredibly important to think about uh, as you develop technologies and bring them to market. Um, Health technology assessments uh, available around the world um, are are variable and um, I'll show some research which shows some of that variability currently Uh, and certainly they're becoming more transparent. Uh, And by the same token, uh, reimbursement deliberations uh, are occurring all around the world in every individualized healthcare uh, system by almost all payers. Uh, And so they're uh, becoming localized, they've always been, maybe even more so now depending on individual systems. Uh, but some of them are obscure, and it's very difficult to understand what the rationale was behind some of the decisions that, uh, that are made as it relates to uh, uh, setting payment or setting tariffs. And so um, uh, very challenging if you're looking at this from a global perspective. So with the backdrop of austerity, we also have several other... Uh, uh, intervening factors, which really require what I'll call local customization of value dossiers. This is something that we in the industry, as in others, have thought about and have moved to not well enough, I'll add, uh, uh, which is that at the end of the day, you've got to have a significant base of clinical and economic evidence and then tailor that to the individual market uh, that you're working in. Uh, and in order to do that, you really need to think about some significant factors that that underline that. So more complex and stringent reimbursement schemes in place uh, around the world. You know, in the United States, uh, we're, we're, we really will move from what we call a, re- a resource-based reimbursement system. I do a service. I'm paid for that service. I, I have a hospitalization. I'm paid from that for that hospitalization to a value-based system. That's a good thing. I think we want to move away as a, as a company like Edwards. We would rather see a value-based reimbursement system than a resource-based uh, re- reimbursement system. Um, but as a result of that, reimbursement is becoming more complicated. You think of bundled payment, for example, where instead of paying you for that one episode, I'll pay you for 90 days or 180 days or an entire year's care for a patient. And in that bundle, all of the providers within it uh, have to share. Uh, And so these schemes are becoming much more complicated. There's more local price negotiations and more complexity within those and more requirements there. And then certainly the emerging markets around the world uh, present new opportunities, but also new challenges in terms of how you think uh, about meeting their needs and really as they evolve and determine what their needs are. Uh, And that's really another challenge that you face particularly uh, in, in, in emerging markets, which is uh, we have it in, in, in the U.K. We certainly have it in the U.S. where we're evolving rapidly. These countries are evolving in a way as well, uh, in a different way, but important to think about. So the root of the matter really is um, every payer uh, has a desire for and a definition of value, um, and, and they seek value for the money spent on healthcare care goods and services. Um, we can define it uh, in several different ways, um, and payers differ on how these parameters are weighted and prioritized, uh, whether or how they're used in a comparative fashion, uh, and how they incorporate their system-specific requirements in terms of how they think about this. And we face this every day, where we see different requirements in different areas of the world as it relates to several of these parameters. That makes it a challenge in terms of evidence generation. Um, And so, uh, you know, we've got to, you know, if you haven't thought about health economics If you haven't thought about cost, uh, even in very early stage development, um, you're already behind the game. Um, You know, we've started processes in Edwards now very early on, uh, sitting down with engineers as they have concepts and they throw the concept on the screen. And we sit there and we talk through a little bit about, well, what are some of the implications of, uh, of the design that you've created or the idea that you have in the reimbursement environment? Let, let me just help orient you and, and help you think about <clears throat> some of the challenges that we'll face if we go through our various research gates uh, and make it into clinical trials uh, or into commercialization. And that's really made a change uh, over the last few years in terms of uh, how uh, everyone thinks in terms of the development process. Now. Uh, Will it stop development? No. Uh, Will it alert uh, uh, us that we've got to think even harder uh, about what some of the implications are of the uh, products uh, in development? Absolutely. And that's been a very helpful process. So I think there's been some uh, spillover from pharma, uh, and that's had an impact certainly on clinical device trials. You know, I didn't uh, state my hypothesis up early, but it uh, hopefully has become evident already, which says that... um, uh, does reimbursement uh, have an impact on clinical trial design? Absolutely. It, uh, it has an impact. It should have a greater impact as we move into the future. So, um, you know, regulatory requirements um, are going to become more clinical effectiveness and patient outcomes focused. We've seen, I think, a mention of uh, quality of life outcomes and a patient focus now uh, throughout the day, and we'll continue to see that. It varies, again, uh, in, in different countries, uh, and so you've got to consider what's most important as it relates to those uh, kind of metrics and outcomes. Um, HTA and payer requirements uh, are becoming more methodical uh, and tailored to our specific industry. Um, And um, there's really a greater desire for comparative analysis, uh, especially when seeking price differentiation. This is a point I'll really emphasize, particularly in medical device iteration. Um, We may think as an industry, from an industry perspective, that the second and third generation devices really are the next best thing since sliced bread and really uh, provide a significant value over previous generations. And I think in in many cases that's true. The challenge for us is to prove that um, without having to go through additional burdensome regulatory uh, or clinical processes. Uh, And so we've really got to think creatively about what are ways to produce the evidence that will be required to differentiate different evolutions of devices that will also provide the commensurate additional reimbursement. Or if we enhance a device significantly with adding other elements to the device that lead to better patient safety, that lead potentially to better outcomes, et cetera, how do we prove that in a way uh, that's economically feasible that then allows payers to differentially pay And furthermore, is there a system which allows for that differentiation to occur and that extra payment to flow? And that's the challenge in the U.S. that we have. In a fixed payment system that's just based on, again, a resource, and hospitalization, it makes no difference what device you might use for a transcatheter valve and whether that has embolic protection or other elements in the future that will Uh, improve uh, the device. You receive the same payment as a hospital from Medicare and from most payers whether or not you use one device over another. So unless we have a system which recognizes that differentiation in terms of payment and Mark mentioned a few processes that do exist to do that but they're very minimal uh, certainly in the US and I think around the world in our experience and when you go through those even in those countries that have them It's a laborious process that typically does not result in extra payment. Unless that system exists, then it's going to be very difficult to be successful. So two things have to change, and that's a little bit of my point there. Um, Some interesting research from Tufts. Uh, My point here just being even in phase three clinical trials, you've got uh, much more involvement uh, in patients around the world now we could argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, and, and, and whether that's been necessitated by some challenges in doing research in, in countries like the U.S., and I assume the U.K., but um, nonetheless, there's more evidence being created around the world. Um, and, and payers are looking at that. I'll use the example, because I know it well, in Medicare, uh, where there have been very large, well-done uh, uh, trials that have not included significant numbers of Medicare patients, typically age 65, disabled or with end-stage renal disease. And when I was at the agency, we very frequently would sit down with sponsors who would come in, walk through the trial methodology and the results, excellent trials. And we'd say, well, this really, you know, so you included no Medicare-age patients in this trial. There clearly is a patient population of, of, of Medicare beneficiaries who would utilize this technology. And so the evidence really uh, doesn't exist in that population. Um, it's very difficult for us to establish coverage um, now, with mechanisms like commissioning uh, through appraisal or coverage with evidence development, which I think is a corollary. Uh, in the U.S., um, there's now mechanisms potentially where, uh, if you haven't studied certain subpopulations, you can, you can, uh, you can uh, receive at least reimbursement or coverage through some of these mechanisms for those. But. Um, it's a real challenge, and so you, you really need to localize the evidence as well in many cases and think about that. Clearly uh, more uh, trials being done in the in, in rest of the world. Um, this was the, uh, the study I alluded to that was uh, um, published recently. I'll just very quickly go through it in the interest of time, but um, just some interesting points here. Um, uh, so they, they, it was not uh, a particularly uh, uh, methodologic study, but they uh, surveyed health technology assessment agencies around the world. They did receive a significant response rate back, but um, there's certainly some, some bias uh, in the study. Nonetheless, it was interesting to look at some of the results. They characterized uh, a medical device in those three categories. And if you look, and, uh, when they asked about the percent of respondents who used this particular methodology, Uh, in their uh, assessments of medical devices, uh, this was the response rate. Not surprisingly, they often turned to systematic and comparative reviews and analyses. But um, what I found uh, very interesting here was, um, you know, expert opinion um, uh, rated fairly highly uh, uh, in in their responses. Uh, as well as uh, modeling in some cases particularly for established devices so there's a lot of variability and I think the variability showed through um, in in, uh, when they asked about the relative importance of uh, these attributes Um, clearly effectiveness and safety were, were very highly noted but what surprised me here and what might surprise you here is now again these are health technology assessment agencies in general they're not payers there are a few Combined HTA payers in here, but if you look at cost, quality of life and budget impact, those rated fairly low uh, in this survey um, that you know um, that's going to change when I saw that. my first thought was that will change uh, in the future as these two things come together and, and certainly um, health technology assessment agencies may stay purely on the clinical evidence side, but I don't think for the future that's really realistic I think they're going to have to uh, continue to and accelerate uh, their look both at the clinical uh, and and the cost data. Uh, And so I found that to be interesting. Now, um, what were the methodologies used in these health technology assessment agencies? Again, some variability. Uh, We might be able to quibble with some of this. Again, this was a a sample, so they, they went to a couple of agencies in each of the countries, and they got back uh, responses, so not necessarily representative of, of all of the <coughs> assessment agencies, but interesting to see some of, again, the variability. Uh, let me move on a little bit. Um, I, I think you know well um, that devices are different, and they're different in, in ways that matter, uh, and so when you think uh, not only about your clinical trial work, but also the additional evidence uh, needed uh, in, in a new environment, really taking into account uh, some of these differences, so thinking about the Rapid product life cycle um, for example Um, You know what's the difference in regulatory approval times and what does that mean the number one thing? We would tell companies that came in when they spoke with us at CMS for coverage with a 510k was You have no evidence behind your clearance if you want Medicare coverage show us Create some evidence or show us a causal pathway show us something not just a predicate device That's the basis for your approval. That may be good enough for FDA clearance, but it's certainly not good enough in some cases for a payer. Um, You know, I think I'd like to raise at the panel um, uh, the the issue of, uh, you know, Buxton's Law and Morello's comment about uh, ultrasound. I remembered we looked at ultrasound at Medicare in 2000. So the idea of when do you look at a technology is really a critical one. I'll tell you, in our experience with the transcatheter valve in the United States, um, uh, you know, um, Medicare began their review uh, of Sapien before Sapien was approved by the FDA. Um, uh, and certainly in thinking about, you know, when is the appropriate timing uh, for a review uh, and its impact on what a actual review means in the marketplace uh, is a good one to think about as well. And so I'd love to bring that up in discussion. So thinking about these differences as you as you think about the requirements, let's call it, in just a post-regulatory environment, are important. Um, and value in the device world is complicated because when we may be talking about implantable devices here today, but remember, devices uh, encompass, you know, diagnostics uh, through reusables, through low-risk products. Um, and each of those um, you know, have sp- specific issues and, and differences associated with them around really uh, how you quantify or think about value but also uh, some of the economic uh, differences amongst them. So if you're thinking about a reusable, how do you calculate in exactly what the cost might be uh, over a period of time? So if you're doing economic analysis in a reusable market, that's very, very different than in an implantable. And certainly in an implantable, that's done, let's say, in in an expensive inpatient procedure. So um, I think in general, these differences have led to some less burdensome regulatory processes, but certainly um, short-term or in some cases no clinical trials for certain products, trials with small sample sizes, certainly a lack of randomized clinical trial, uh, and and. And what that, what that's meant and how a payer typically will look at it is, well, that means that there's less evidence generated for payer consideration for those things that are important to me as a payer. And what it's also led to is a lot of post hoc economic analyses. And I think this is a real challenge. I think in, in, for us in transcatheter and sapien, uh, we thought very long and hard about how to develop the economic evidence alongside of the clinical evidence. And we ran parallel economic studies alongside a partner, which were published alongside a partner, and which continue today. It may be unique, uh, partner, one of the, one of the larger uh, clinical trials done uh, in medical devices um, uh, and certainly the dollars that went behind both the clinical and, and, and certainly the economic work now, but those can be done in simpler ways uh, earlier on in the development process across the device landscape. Um, it takes some creative thinking. Um, But, really, that's sort of part of the needs to be part of those early discussions. Where can we build on the synergies as we're doing the clinical work and and develop the economic work alongside, sometimes collecting economic data at the same time in a a data report form that you're collecting clinical data can be done. There are challenges just like there are with any data collection, uh, but, really, there's a lot of synergies that are lost um, that need to be capitalized on to meet this what I'll call payer demand for the future. Uh, and so we really need to think about that uh, uh, very early on. Um, and there's other challenges as well. Um, and, and so, you know, value um, can also, as we talked about, uh, be from a provider perspective in terms of uh, uh, technologies, improving patient uh, throughput and workflow and staffing. Now, those may not be important parameters at all uh, from, a, from a clinical perspective, although I think they are. Uh, but from a payer perspective, they're, they're par- they can be paramount. And, to, and I'll go back to one of the comments I made, which was that you have to think about your individual markets very carefully. I'll conclude on that too, which is um, in the U.S., and I'll use this example, we think about it every day at Edwards as we're developing new technologies, not only in our structural heart uh, groups but uh, in our critical care monitoring group, but um, uh, which is uh, if we receive the same payment no matter what technology is used, It's not necessarily the payer that we're going to be spending time thinking about because we know what the payment is, and that's not going to change. It's going to be the hospital that we think about. So an outcome like improvement in patient throughput, nurse workflow, staffing, can be absolutely critical to a hospital and make the difference. So if we have the clinical evidence which says this technology brings a benefit to a patient, but it may be difficult to prove that it's any better or different from another technology in the marketplace. If we have the clinical, if we have the economic evidence that's important to a hospital, that can make the difference in terms of adoption. So, just to give you an example, in other countries that might not be a relevant example. And that's why you've got to really customize here. So, I'll, I'll just move on in the interest of time. So, um, here's how I'll conclude with a series of slides. And, um, know you'll have access to these if you want to look at the details but here's what I think payers will be looking for and what you need to be thinking about as you address this this future Um, so the first one certainly they're going to be looking for long-term clinical effectiveness now this doesn't mean you need to create clinical trials which last for years and years but this means you need to think about data collection in a post approval environment that's going to provide to the payer evidence of effectiveness and durability. And I've heard time and time again from payers around the world on this issue around durability, where a short-term outcome that may be what your pivotal trial produced, even in stunning fashion, is not going to be good enough in the long-term for the payer who's going to be looking for long-term durability of that device. And especially if they're looking against comparators and comparators that have existed that have strong evidence over many, many years. And that's really a, a just, so looking at <laughs> registries, at pragmatic uh, ways of collecting data, uh, we'll call it in the real world, um, are, are critically important uh, really to continue to support your value proposition. Um, secondly, um, they're going to look to make more and sometimes unexpected comparisons. Um, And so really in the development um, of of thinking about the research, it's uh, how do I think about what a payer may be looking at as the comparator to my technology? Because we've seen surprises again uh, where uh, what we expected would be the obvious comparator wasn't. um, And they're looking for uh, additional uh, um, techniques or additional Uh, technologies or even outside of the technology world in terms of uh, other comparators and so a greater range of active comparators and um, potentially more head-to-head trials and and certainly uh, in some systems we're seeing we're seeing this more and more uh, where they're demanding head-to-head trials Um, they um, may focus on effect size not just superiority so I would like to see a significant effect size Um, and um, what what a payer might call simple superiority, uh, even proven in a well-designed trial, uh, might not meet um, their expectations for a significant effect size that's worth uh, covering or paying for the technology. If you layer in cost-effectiveness into this as well, you really have what I call the double whammy. Um, And so you really have to be thinking about this uh, early on. Uh, Seek more data on heterogeneity of the treatment effect. I mentioned that earlier. Um, And then, um, uh, finally, certainly a move more towards uh, cost-effectiveness and cost-effective products. I want to make one comment about this because I hear it time and time again, and then I'll conclude. Um, Medicare and certainly other U.S. payers make decisions to evaluate technologies and make decisions about covering technologies based on cost. There is nothing in U.S statute, or law, which says that the government cannot make decisions for Medicare based on cost. Now, there are some things in Obamacare that help protect from one perspective against doing that, but nonetheless, there nothing is. When CMS looks at a cardiovascular device to evaluate, one of the first questions they ask is, will this have a significant impact now or in the future on the budget of the program? And then they move to question two, three, four, and five. It's the first gating criteria. If a technology is not perceived to have a significant impact in the Medicare population in terms of a dollar perspective, it's unlikely, given resources, that the agency is going to look at that in any further detail. And so that's an important consideration. So they're going to look for whether it's cost effective or budget impact, they're going to look at a dollar pound yen figure. And they're going to look for more sophisticated patient-reported outcomes. I think we're seeing this particularly in the U.S. in the U.S. around quality of life. So um, I'll skip forward um, and just uh, conclude in my final thoughts. Um, we're in a highly transformative time, an evolutionary time for lots of different reasons. Um, the evidence demands are increasing; they're increasingly internationally increasingly international um, but market specific and 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 I think we've seen now a flip where you've moved from saying where some have moved from saying I've got to focus on my specific markets and just think from a more international and global perspective uh, and that's a problem because the data is becoming international the requests are, in, are becoming broader uh, but markets are specific and will remain specific. And so this idea of creating a base of clinical and economic evidence and tailoring that to the specific market, I really can't overemphasize. And the evidence needed finally for regulatory approval uh, will not get you optimal market access. It probably never has. And in our environment now and in the future, even more so, won't. So. Um, If we have to end with something, I'd say, yes, uh, reimbursement and payer concerns has had, will have, should have a significant impact on clinical trial design. Thank you very much.